Scott and Liam versus Evil. I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Do you think I watch I'm a celebrity, get me out of here? Well, that'll be that. Welcome to Scotland Liam vs. Evil. This is episode 56. 56. And I am Scott. And I am Liam. And this week is uh, my pick. And I am pretty chuffed about this one. Because it's pretty good. We're watching the Harry Potter and the Dead Lady. (laughs) Otherwise known as The Women in Black, starring Daniel Radcliffe. From 2012, directed by James Watkins. Also director of Eden Lake, fucking brilliant film. Check it out if you've not seen that. Uh, a young solicitor travels to a remote village where he discovers the vengeful ghost of a scorned woman is terrorising the locals. Now I can only picture this as Harry Potter because you've seen that. Because <laughs> that sounds like a Harry Potter plotline. Oh, you bastard. <laughs> I do love this this movie. I remember because I, I watched it. Have I told the story about how I watched this not in the podcast, maybe, who knows. Possibly, but I can't remember yesterday, so there's no danger in remembering. I watched this movie, I bought this movie off eBay years ago, I think I still lived with my mum at the time, and um, it arrived and it was like... 2012 you went off? No, that. no, sorry, not this movie, the original. Oh, right. And it arrived with like a kind of scanned and copied cover in a DVD case, no barcode, and the disc was just written on so right. I put it in and watched it, and it was just it was just done in a sort of weird way. There's no special effects, no nothing, just kind of camera tricks, but subtle enough for me to watch it to begin with. Thinking, is this is this real? If I bought if I stumbled across one of these weird anomalies, it's like a fucking <laughs> movie that's actually genuinely real, and it freaked me out for ages until there's a an actor in Andy Nyman who's went on to become pretty good at writing things. He's have you ever seen the Channel Four? Zombie one, dead set, set around Big Brother. Uh-huh. The guy who's the guy who shits in the bucket. Again, I can't remember yesterday, but he's, I, right, and, I Andy Nyman, he, I think he wrote that as well with Charlie Brooker, that kind of right, So okay. he works with him. And uh, so he had noticed that he's in it, so I thought, so that is a legit thing. And then obviously the remake came out with Daniel Radcliffe, which was good as well. And then the stage show as well. Have you seen the stage show? I've not seen the stage show. I, I do. I know you talked about it after you've seen it and me and Lara are choking to go see it yeah, it's so, so good it. but what I did do is I brought you the creepy weird that one that I got actually looks quite terrifying and it is and it, honestly it's so weird because it's it's so subtle the special effects like the the, the camera tricks and that that's 100% the, a pilot DVD yeah I know yeah I bought it on eBay yeah but I didn't know what I bought but it turns out it's like a made for TV um, film and that's like what it's but it's creepy as shit man and it freaked me out to be. And the thing is, in this, in the 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 new one, the one that we're talking about today, has been updated for a kind of Hollywood audience. I know it's a British film, and it's like the resurgence of Hammer Horror that was like uh-huh. a big comeback that studio. But they 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 changed a bunch of things to make it a more Hollywood story, like give it a give him a purpose to try and sort of fix the ghost and end it all and all that kind of stuff. And like, because I'd forgot about the, the three girls suicide at the very start they added in the remake. Uh-huh. And also the fact that they had killed his wife and added a nanny in, because uh-huh. that didn't happen. His wife was still alive in the, in the movie. It gave him. It's supposed to give his character like purpose or something or sadness or whatever right. fucking else. The only woman in black I've seen is this the Harry Potter version. Yeah. I've not seen that. Oh, a chat. You should put a photo of that up in the group because that is quite haunting. Also means that you've been buying 
DVDs. Yeah, but I didn't know it at the time. Oh, you definitely fucking knew it. I didn't. That's yeah. what I, th- I thought it was real. No, you're a criminal. I thought it was real. You're a total criminal. You watch that. You'll think <coughs> it's real as well. Yeah, but you you watch that tonight and you'll message me and you'll be like, "Is, is, is this real? Is she coming to get me? <laughs> is that how I message? Is that how, is yeah. that how I sound when that's you're? What I, that's what I think. You're being through, yeah. Uh, as you say, this is the this was part of the Hammer Resurgence uh, that started out with Beyond the Rave, which is a free online kind of mad zombie mm, movie that nobody watched. Nobody watched Wakewood, which I have in DVD. Oh yeah, Wakewood. Yeah. I didn't like it as much, although I do think I was expecting too much from it. Mm. It's on Netflix. I'll probably go back and watch it. Uh, the Resident, which is on Amazon, which I've always is that thought a good. remake of a Roman Polanski know. film? No, that's the Tenant. No, Sorry, that's remember. Uh, Let Me In which is a remake from the Swedish is that there? yep Let the Right One In and The Women in Black and then The Women in Black the uh, Children of Death or something yeah, yeah, Angel of Death uh, which to me is fucking exciting because I love the Hammer films yeah. I kind of grew up watching the Hammer films so hearing that Hammer was back when Wakewood was coming out I was like fuck yes this would be amazing I think that's why I was maybe let down with that because I had too high hopes for it mm-hmm. The Woman in Black, as much as it's Daniel Radcliffe, as much as it's in like fucking, it, it's like Hollywood and it brings in it brings in like a an audience from the Harry Potter films. I as much and that's the type of thing that usually my stupid horror snob head would be like, oh it's rubbish. This movie is fucking good. Yeah, I, I really rate Daniel Radcliffe. I think he's good. Mm-hmm. And straight the first thing he did after Harry Potter was he went on the stage and he's wanging it. So, so that's why. Like <laughs> of course they. Uh, so this is definitely a, a real. Brilliant comeback for Hammer. It maybe didn't keep it up after this, but well, the quiet ones was good as well. But hopefully, they maybe start going back. At least they just they keep making movies, and it still they still exist, don't they? I bet if if they go back to the way this was to the film, if they if they concentrate on the old Victorian kind of the same Hammer. Yeah. They should just they should, yeah they should field. just tell creepy, gothic, atmospheric ghost stories. The way Hammer should be, and it would yeah. be brilliant. And right. yeah, so let's get in it. Every time I've watched this, I have never ever noticed that when the three girls jump out the window, the women in black standing at the door. Yeah, yeah. I've never noticed that yeah. until watching it for this podcast, right. and I was like, oh, "Fuck!" Uh, like I even went to see it in the pictures, so the women in black would have been fucking like. Six wait, feet tall. wait. She's not in the first scene. Is she not? No, it's when it's when you look back at it again. Because remember they look back in the police station when the, the, the wee girls drank the lie. She's not there then, but then they look back at it and then she's standing there that time. So it's in the look back, it's once you find her. Oh, I, pr- I promise Are you. Are you sure? I think so. Because it's the start of my notes. Mm. So I wouldn't have wrote that down if I didn't see her. Unless I was stoned. <laughs> <laughs> Which might have been the case. Um, I'll go. Well, I'll watch it. I, when I go home, I'll, I'll stick it on and I'll watch the first scene again. But you might be right, but I don't think you see yeah, it. Because there's a few other bits where I never ever seen the woman uh-huh. in black in the corner and yeah. reflections and stuff. And I seen it watching it. There was thing. a couple. Of, yeah, there was a couple of times I noticed her on the reflections in the side of the the scene, and the, and it's almost like it's pretty good because it's it's like subtle enough. I don't think they want you to see it. First but time. if you see it, it creeps you out. But then you notice it because you almost notice it at the end after she moves and you're like, wait, was she there? And it's it is That's quite, what this movie does yeah. fucking well. Yeah. So it then cuts to Diane Radcliffe and his son. Yeah, I've, I've written uh, Plague Era London, but is it Plague Era London or is it after Plague Era London? Yeah. To, to me, all Victorian London is Plague Era. And then I've wrote, because they find out he's a lawyer, I'm like, how long has stuff been illegal and shit? Like law firms and that, how long have they existed? And I hate the law. <laughs> just in general just like because it's like the law equals society and I just hate the whole fucking thing 
but then if you didn't have law, society would just crumble and you'd just be, people would be in shit. I'd be in my element. You think you'd be in your element? <laughs> you would crash and burn almost instantly. You'd just be shitting everywhere. Yeah, just shitting everywhere. And your neighbours who skin through their drawers. <laughs> uh, so the little boy comes in with a, a very professionally bound sketchbook. That kid's like fucking three. He drew those pictures. How did he bound that sketchbook? <laughs> who knows? Why does Daniel Radcliffe then take the sketchbook and explain to the little boy his trip by going through the sketchbook by saying, oh, on, on Wednesday, Daddy will be back. The little boy fucking drew it. If the little boy drew it, he knows when the dad's coming back. Yeah. And Plot hole. Daniel Radcliffe also took the B-Boy's diary with him to the to the, the island. So now he So the B-Boy doesn't have a fucking clue where his dad is. Fucking major plot hole. But do you know what it seems? Also, the little boy never met his mum. So how does he know how his mum would sit in a cloud? Fucking angel. Maybe his mum sits cross-legged. Yeah, Major you know, yeah, I get it. Not get enough it. to put me off. No. Still, kids can't bound books, so just when, yeah, when, yeah, when, when, when you're forced to critically analyse films the, the, in the professional manner the way that we do, it's, <laughs> these things do do weird their heads. But it, it seems like you find out that he's a lawyer and he gets told by his boss that uh, an old woman called Alice Drablo has died at this old house, Eelmarsh Estate. And he used to go and sort out a paperwork to make sure that our last will and testament is in order. Now, it seems a bit bizarre that he used to go wade through mountains of paperwork in an old house to put our will in order. How much stuff in that house is going to be relevant? You see, when he, when he starts going through stuff, he finds old birthday cards and that. See, if somebody had to come into my house and go through all the paperwork that I've got lying about in the cupboards, it would tell you fuck all. It would tell you that I just leave stuff lying at my arse is what it would tell you. Just a page from a sex offender. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Your name on it. Uh, so, Daniel Radcliffe jumps on Hogwarts Express <laughs> and how many trains, movie trains do you think Daniel Radcliffe's been on? Uh, I'm pretty sure every movie I've seen him in, apart from Swiss Army Man, which is also brilliant, he's in a train. Is he in a train in Horns? Every movie apart from <laughs> Horns, Swiss Army Man. I've not seen many other movies. I've only seen them in, in. He's in. Just caught you. Just put me in the spot. Exactly. Right? He is in other movies. I don't think he is. He fucking is. Oh, he's in Kill Your Darlings when he's plays that. Uh, is he on a train there? I don't think those nah, trains invented there. No, there will be. There'll be some sort of train. Anyway, he's in two movie trains. Right. <laughs> so how many <laughs> movies changed? Think Daniel Radcliffe's been on two. Right. Anyway, skipping that point. Well, I was what I asked because his his wife died in childbirth in this movie. I was like, how mental is childbirth? Like, women can still die from it, like yeah. even to this day. And yet, elephants and giraffes just plop out wings like it's a runny shit, and then that wings up and walking about within a minute. How the fuck are we the one that's the ones that are so advanced? I think elephants and giraffes can also die in childbirth. Can they? Yeah, you just don't hear about it in movies because, because wife, <laughs> I don't like Hollywood. Are going to fucking put on a hammer or go to punch. Millions in a movie about a giraffe dying in terrible. <laughs> Make a good movie. <laughs> so he gets to the wee village and there's a tension. He gets to the pub. There's the tension between the landlord and the landlady and they don't want him to stay in the loft. That's probably the point where you go, the fuck this then? Back in Hogwarts Express, get him. Oh, there was about 20 times when if it was me and if it was my job, I'd be like, alright then. No. <laughs> so <laughs> so see, see, see you later. <laughs> Why does Daniel Radcliffe not even question? Why... They don't want him up in the loft. Well, the the wife does, but I'd have probably thought also from his point of view that the wife, like the 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 land man, what do you call it? The landlord. landlord. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, let's let's go. The land man. <laughs> the land man was kind of like podgy, bald, 
And then the landlady comes down, and I just thought that she wanted to bang Daniel Radcliffe. And then he's like, oh, I'm going to bang. I don't think he thought that in fucking Victorian uh, Victorian London. Oh, well. In fact, there was a whole lot of banging. Maybe because there was a whole lot of banging, and they were banging everybody. (laughs) Hey... Wait a minute, I don't know, I'm already in, I'm fucking making stupid notes, like, the talking bird is the worst talking bird sound effect ever. Um, do you know, like, it's mental that our grandparents, maybe even our parents, can remember shillings? When did they end? The 70s? I don't even know where the fuck I'm writing that then. <laughs> also, was it the 70s the shilling ended? I don't know, I think our parents can remember shillings. Yeah, our parents can remember shillings, because I don't think it was that long ago. No. Maybe even the 80s. Like, before no, me, but maybe, still maybe, the 80s. Maybe the 80s. No. Before you, shut up. I guess five years to the 80s before me. To be honest, if the, if the shilling wasn't around when you were young, then it was a long time ago, <laughs> so fair enough. Uh, they meet a guy called Jerome. In fact, Jerome, that, that's who it is. Jerome is the guy who's meant to be taken to the house. Jerome's the estate agent. Jerome's, yeah, so Jer- Jerome's the solicitor for the, yeah, because it was the solicitor's right. office, isn't he? Jerome's quite weird looking. Yeah. You, you really? Tell me something about Jerome. Yeah, he's really weird looking. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a scene where we skip some things where. He walks by after shit happens and he just turns around and looks at Diane Radcliffe because he realises he's there and it's probably the worst action I've ever seen because <laughs> he walks around and he's like... <laughs> and he's kind of got a droopy eye and stuff and it's fucking weird and it's quite unsettling. Although it's probably just the way the guy looks and I shouldn't be thinking that's unsettling. It adds like, a creepy level... Yeah, to, to the, the whole Ukraine island. Yeah. Is that an island? Uh, no, it's it not. Just... Oh, it's just the country but yeah. the, the house is on a kind of island. Um, but it's like that's one of the scenes where I'd have been like right he's there first goes into the solicitor's office and says yeah I'm supposed to go up to Elmarsh House and go through all the paperwork for my, my job and Jerome says oh don't worry here it is a wee envelope I've done it for you <laughs> I'd be like oh nice one see you later <laughs> catch you I'm going to do back to work for to Monday so that's a week off brilliant would you then stay there for the week off part, or would you go back home I'd probably go back home to my son and my nanny, nanny that I've hired to, so I can bang clearly uh, I like when they then reveal the the house. Was it called Eel Marsh, Marsh House? It's quite lovely and creepy big house. Aye, big gothic yep. fucking foreboding atmospheric thing that just fills the scene. I really like that because it's a nod to all the old Hammer yeah. films. Cause there's probably the even they set, she's probably even in scene. one of the windows. Cause there's quite a lot of windows and you you don't really get a good view of them, so that you might need to look really hard. But she's yeah, probably she's in probably one of the windows. Yeah. Aye. Uh, I've wrote down that as well. Atmospheric, there's some jump scares, so it's good. Sound quality is excellent. Um, I watched this one on the TV with my soundbar. Ah, good. Um, it's like a proper ghost story for the most part, so it's a good return for Hammer Horror. That's like where we are. So we're obviously, he's in the house at this point, going through some of the stuff. You say about the sound, the sound is the one thing that I think there'll be a lot of people who criticise this movie because it's Daniel Radcliffe or because it's so popular, but the sound can't be argued the yeah. sound is fucking amazing yeah it really the sound's a 10 out of 10 mm-hmm. if you were just if you're just rating that he, he gets in the house and he's going through some of the paperwork and the first thing he reads just uncovers like a massive plot line or like or the boy drowns in the marsh yeah what are the chances that in that whole house yeah. all that paperwork the first thing you pick up it tells you by the way boy drowns in the marsh yeah there's a new plot it's not believable. No, because you probably <laughs> fucking wade through hundreds of receipts for fucking toilet paper and all sorts of shit, wouldn't you? And birthday cards, like you said. Birthday cards. He looks out the window and there's a the woman in black is standing in the graveyard. Fucking very unsettling. Yeah. It's well done. Because she looks like a creepy bitch. Wait till you watch the original because I just found, thought that was even... 
even creepier. Scary, yeah, creepier. Is it because you believed it though, rather than it actually being done well? Well, it is real, so when you watch it, you'll know exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. My notes then go on to you with the wee lassie dies. Yep, kind of serves a right for drinking lie. Kids are daft. <laughs> so the wee lassie's poisoned. Again, that's then another fucking red flag. Get out. There's a wee yeah. lassie dying. Kind of in your arms. Right? Yeah, and then they, they eventually blame him for it as well, don't they? Because yeah, it's only all happened when he's came. Yeah. You just, do you know what? Fuck it. My job's not worth this. No. That's grief I'm getting for these. So they all, because all the guys want him to leave the, the, the village, uh, but the Manny mate on the train who's invited him for supper at his house uh-huh. for, he's way too friendly I don't know why he's friendly and everybody else is fucking hates him but he's rich rich people mm. can't afford to be friendly or unfriendly they don't give a fuck yeah they invite him to supper so he goes because he says the, the food at the end is rubbish but I wouldn't want to stay in the end anyway because they you, might get to, you, might, you might get to bang the wife but then the husband's probably going to kick your cunt in <laughs> so uh, they eat dinner with the rich family and they find out that their son's dead and there's a whole bonding moment with them talking about a dead son and Daniel Radcliffe talking about his dead wife. And then the wife goes mental. The, the mum. Yep. The, uh, she's like goes into like some kind of trance as that's cutting the table with her butter knife. But then and this is when the, the husband just in the in the servant just grabs some chloroform and just knock it out. <laughs> I was like, that's quite a good yeah, technique. Yeah. I, I, was, I wish I could just get chloroform chloroform alone whenever she gets hysterical. <laughs> it annoyed at me. Tells, not, or tells me to look do the dishes or tidy up after myself I think if I had chloroform I, I wouldn't use it later chloroform, chloroform yourself because <laughs> I you get some buzz off it I'd just be just be here fucking with my tits and chloroform I'd be, you'd probably, I mean, when you're, uh, when you're, I'm wetting bread oh, for fuck's sake man what the fuck <laughs> was that you could probably be like oh it's time to go to sleep oh I'm not tired yet <laughs> <laughs> out of the game I'd do it all the time I'd, I'd put myself to sleep every night I'd have done it last Saturday See or two Saturdays ago, see when I was that had that abscess, I'd have chloroformed the fuck out of myself because <laughs> I genuinely thought I was going to have to take scissors to my gum and cut this abscess out. It was fucking agony. It's the worst day of my life. I actually want to cry about it. Do you think this whole movie's a social commentary and why children shouldn't be allowed to draw pictures before the age of ten? The artwork's always totally subpar. That's it's always creepy, and it yeah. always leads to ghosts. Or murders. Yep. In every film, if a kid so, draws a picture, it's something haunting. Take the cranes away from them. Take the cranes away from them. No more cranes. No more creativity or artistry with kids under 10. Hashtag no more cranes. Get, get it trending. If I used Twitter, I'd get that going. Get it trending. Are we learning about who the who the ghost is? Because we find it, because you think the ghost is Alice Drablow, but it turns out that the ghost is her sister, who Alice Drablow said... Um, she had mental problems. Her Alice and her husband say that the sister had mental problems, so they locked her away and kind of took the son off her. Mm-hmm. And then it transpires that the Alice and the son uh, sunk in the marsh with uh-huh. their car or their horse-drawn wagon. I think he sunk in the marsh. I don't know if she did. Well, no, the, the car sunk in the marsh and Alice managed to get off and get out, but she didn't help right. the son get out, so the sister blamed her and was angry and would never forgive her and all the rest of it. But then she killed herself, which... Probably is from a bit of research. The death certificate back in the Victorian era, if you kill yourself, you have committed self-murder. Nah, <laughs> yeah, that's self-murder. what it says. Uh, uh, method of death, self-murder. This is then where the movie kind of kicks in, where a lot of it's creepiness. Yeah. Because Would you stay in that house? 
Dasty in the house, what the fuck? That's exactly that, bro! <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> not a fucking chance. I'll not be anywhere near it. <laughs> uh, this is where uh, he's playing the little picture wheel. And this was, I remember this was using the ad there mm-hmm. before it came out. Yeah, yeah. And our face appears in it. It's fucking well done. Yeah. It's, it's because it draws your stuff. attention because you're looking down at the wee picture, but it's like over, uh, yeah, you'd move your eyes to see her face appear. And it is, it's clever. Uh, they're clever scares. That's the thing. They're, mm-hmm. they're dragging your eyes away from where. Yeah where your eyes are yeah. rather than it just being fucking yeah. right in front of you but it's also like it's like a jump scare is good if it's been led into the right way and it leads out of it the right way see that the ones that we complain about that are cheap when they just like out of nowhere just scary or or they, they, they have somebody walking slowly and you creep behind them following them and then it's just noise followed by like usually it's something like a, a cat walks out and then like a really loud uh, noise but if in reality the cat would just walk out. The cat would make a big fucking noise. So, do I mean it's cheap? Yeah. yeah so, but uh, in this movie, they're they're done. Yeah, there's a lot. Well. There's a lot of good jump scares that yeah aren't cheap. Yeah. However, my next note says the jump scare of seeing the nanny in the window. I didn't like. No, that felt like I imagine it would look on the TV version. Yeah. Like it's really forced and really too kind of clean cut yeah it would be better if it was the face of the ghost yeah than the face of the nanny I, in fact it looks like a fucking uh, wet 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 video yeah 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 I don't know like I totally know what you mean you're crying and she appears at the window yeah. singing and then it'll cut to her scene where she sees you in the mirror and yeah. it's just nah I, 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 I totally agree but when she disappears that's when you see the wee boy ghost climbing up out the marsh and that was effective it was and he starts walking towards the house that's pretty creepy but did the ghostly boy just was he just sitting about waiting till he knew that Harry Potter was watching for him at the window? Well, is the ghost actually there, <clears throat> or is it in his head? So of course it's only when he looks out does he see it coming out the marsh, because it's just a figment of his imagination. No, the ghost definitely there. Is the ghost definitely no, there? No, the ghost is definitely there. Are ghosts real? Yeah, yeah. Are ghosts real? Of course they're real. Are ghosts real? <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not. Um, <coughs> we've already seen the rocking chair as well at this point like one of the rooms is locked and the rocking chair kind of keeps going over and that's actually a really good scene I don't know if it's this one or if it's the second time we see the rocking chair but we see it from Daniel Radcliffe's point of view and it's rocking back and forth and you expect it to stop because that's uh-huh. that's the trope they always stop as if they say there's some force moving it rather than it just blowing in the wind but in this one it's rocking back and forth then you see it from a perspective in front of the chair and she's sitting in the chair and you're Aye. like oh man that's, that's good. good that's good that is good there's a lot of similarities to this or between this and the others with Nicole Kidman yeah uh, The Innocence from like the 70s 60s 1961 I don't know of The Innocence but I was thinking that the others is a brilliant film I've not watched in a long time but they're both 12s as well aren't they yeah so you can tell a fucking really scary story without it having to be like an 18 unlike Blood Salvage which is an 18 <laughs> and it tells you a fucking brilliant story <laughs> uh, Guillermo del Toro's The Orphanage is very similar in aspect to that as well Big House Dead Kids yeah. Ghost the others I enjoyed those when it came out because of the big twist at the end but I don't like Nicole Kidman so I don't know if oh, I ever actually go back Nicole and watch Kidman, it yeah. really oh, I think she's weird man mm. it's probably because I actually sat through all of Eyes Wide Shut when I was like fucking 12 because I got it off the I got the video off the ice cream van thinking oh this must be a good adult movie to watch and it was Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman banging right in fact, actually, there should probably be questions asked to that ice cream man for giving me that video. I <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Uh, but it's very similar to that and very similar to Dracula as well. The kind of outsider coming into the town and everyone hating on him. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm just trying to do his job and it's all very gothic and I really I, I like this movie yeah. I, I don't want to like it for the pretentious prick in me I don't want to like it but I can't help but enjoy it uh, and I, no I really I really do like it I've got a soft spot for the whole story. Daniel Radcliffe and his wine yeah although yeah. I didn't get to see the stage show so I didn't get to see his wine but <laughs> you know. uh, I, I wrote imagine having no lights Imagine having to walk about with fucking candles all the time. Remember we had to record a podcast? That's right, so we did. I had power in it. You really, really take for granted like what we've got in this world. Yeah. Not, imagine, what would you do if you had no electricity? You'd be fucked. Well, that's, there was a Channel 4 document. It was like a four-part series and it was when the grid went out and it was like, if sight falls, you've got like two days before people go fucking mental and start looting and I stealing shit. I didn't two days. I generally see that power cut that night. I went on it for like three and a half You were already stripped off and put the wall paint on it. I was fucking ready. I was like, right, we going out raping tonight. (laughs) So he's, anyway, back to the movie, he's reading letters or the letters from the ghost lady and it's her voice that's reading it. Yeah. It's quite eerie. Mm -hmm. It's quite sexy. Yeah. Yeah, imagine her reading just like some of the Mills and Boone books. Yeah. Like Fifty Shades of Grey. Just hard reading it to you, you'd be like, oh, You ever yes. read a Milton Boone book? No. I read one once before. It was like sitting because it's you've got obviously the wee sexy picture on the front there, and you'd read any, and it's like proper. Like, where, did, like, where did you read it? Are you like, see, if you ever read in the library and you can just like take a book and read it for a bit, I don't want to tell you that my mum or my gran had these books because what I'm going to tell you that I read in the books is like fucking beyond. <laughs> it was like, and then and then he, he, he bent her over the waist and licked her anus <laughs> and then ran his tongue from asshole to, to vagina lips. <laughs> uh, that's how that's how that's how in fact I can't believe you actually had the library and read one yeah first, <laughs> first bonus there's no way there's no way you can write that story sounding good at all actually uh, the, when the camera zooms in so he's in there sleeping we've kind of jumped through this he's in he's at the desk sleeping and the camera's oh, yeah. out in the hall and it's a slow panning that's where you look up at the left you see the mirror yeah and yeah see yeah her and then she moves off yeah that's fucking creepy yeah that's it's done really really especially well especially because I don't in the cinema I don't remember seeing that no uh, I don't remember seeing her walking by it then happens again later in the same mirror yep where she's just standing it's fucking freaky and then from after that but I've got the sound is great because this is where I'm then starting to really realise it just the sound fucking editing and this is amazing yeah it is no, it's it's done it's done fantastically well. All all parts of it. No, no, in the story, this one where the next note I've got is is when he's went back to the solicitors, and uh, when we went to the solicitors the first time, they were milling about in the basement, mm-hmm. and then and then also he went to a second time. We went down in the basement, and there's a girl locked up in the basement, and she screams, "Get away from me! Get away from me! You're the reason that everybody's dying." Or whatever. Uh-huh. And I think it's the third time he goes back to the solicitors. This place is on fire. Uh-huh. And he tries to save the girl, and uh, he doesn't manage it. And I've written, see, lock your kids in the basement, they're going to die. <laughs> so there's a lesson that they learned for everybody, isn't it? Is that, like, is that the one lesson we're taking from this movie? Don't lock your don't kids in the basement. Don't lock your kids in the basement. Where would you lock them then? Um, you just you just find find a room that's soundproof and just chain them into the radiators. In the basement. What, what, what are you doing with them in the basement anyway? You, if you're, if you're lo- trying to keep your kids safe, then don't lock them in the basement. If you're trying to keep your kids away from the public so you don't know that they're there, then lock them in the basement, yeah. If you're trying to keep them safe, why would you chain them in a radio? What's that, keeping them safe? Well, it depends on themselves. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> is it really keeping them safe from themselves? I don't know. <laughs> uh, this way you see the women through the flames. Is it a ghost or... Whatever, I've just caught the women through the yeah. flames is good. <laughs> Which is the most, Aye, no, you the do. most simple when, and note. Is when, I can't yeah, remember you see, it is. yeah, you do. You see the women in black. Um, the, 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 the sister. I think I prefer the original story. Really? Now, I've, I've only watched this maybe twice. Um, and it's been a long time. No, sorry, the original story. I've only watched it maybe twice. I've only watched the Daniel Radcliffe one maybe three times, say. And it's it, all those viewings have been more recent. So mm-hmm. all, all the Daniel Radcliffe viewings have came after of the last thing I watched ah. the original. So I can't remember how similar the story is, like how it transpires that. Um, so in the Daniel Radcliffe one, the sister who killed herself, who was the mum of the wee boy who died in the marsh, was so angry that her sister could steal her son off her and then let him die that she kills all the kids in the village. That's the idea. That's why all these kids are dying. That's why the three at the start jumped out the window because they made her. That's why the wee girl drank the lie because she made her. And that's probably why, I don't know if it's shown or you just assume it, that's probably why the wee lassie set fire at the basement while she's locked in it. I know because the... And that scene as well, you see the woman in black mm-hmm. in the corner. Yep. So she's, so she's there causing all these kid deaths because she's so angry that her son was taken away from mm-hmm. her. Um, and I don't know. Matter, I don't know if that's part of the original story. I think it's just the woman in black in the original story. I don't think she's got a family that's that's oh, discussed. Really? I can't remember, but you watch it and find it, and you'll, you'll be like, that's, that's really quite good. I don't even watch it tonight because that cover is genuinely unsettling. It's really really freaky because it's no, there's no it's all practical effects and it's like camera tricks and stuff to make her like appear like a ghost. And it's apart from that big Photoshop moon behind it. I always like that, but. Yeah. Um, no, this one is just uh, it's just too Hollywood for me. Like, because that's when he finds out that the the body was never discovered. The wee boys and he goes searching for it in the quick sandy marsh thing. That was another unbelievable thing where him and the rich guy start towing the car out the marsh with a car of the same weight. Yeah, or actually a lesser weight because the marsh would have bogged it down so much yeah. that car would have been twice as heavy. That other car would not have pulled it out of the marsh. Logic goes out. First question before even getting to that, how did they put the gravestone cross in? And how was that solid in that ground? Maybe it was just really, really, really tall. No. And and it's also not how marsh and quicksand works. Like, he would die. Because he wouldn't be able to get back out, would he? He claims and he wades in and then goes under the marsh as if he's swimming trying to find the body and he comes back up and says, I've got it. And you think, oh, he's got the boy. It must be a wee skeleton. How's he got to get that out? And the next thing you know, they're reversing out a fucking car. <laughs> the suction would cut him out. The fact that he's got a rope tied in, in half of him, I thought he was going to suck him out the the the, um, the marsh. That would cut him in half, Aye. the suction. And then it's like pulling the car out and he gets the body off it and then they let the car go back under again. It's like... Come on, have you ever seen the video on Facebook about the boy who tried to show an instructional video of how to get out of quicksand and he jumped in a puddle of quicksand and then he fucking sank and died in the quicksand? I, I, it looks gen- I think it's legit. Kind of made me unsettled and a bit weird for a while. Why would you Why would you film yourself with an instructional video on how to get out of quicksand unless you 100% knew you could get out of quicksand? Well, I think the guy thought it could, but it's it's uh, see if it's real. and No, it must be real because it's, it's like... it's. You know, it's Darwinism it right there, right? But the guy died and it's like Wow. <laughs> this is when I was in a in a in a Facebook group that used to post pictures of folk getting killed all the time. And like I would literally and see that way that it was like it was freaking me out and making me uneasy every time these videos would come up. But I'd be like looking at them and I'd be like, 
oh, oh man, I just feel like there's just like in the world was a horrible, horrible place for a while, and then I just uh, get out, start a horrible, I get out, I know, but now I don't see it anymore, so I'm, it's happy now. I just see people falling over, and there's a thing not too long ago, a, a YouTube couple, I don't know where they're from, probably Russia. In fact, it wasn't actually. I was say Russia because they're all fucking mental. It was America. Hmm. And they had seen, well, it was Darren Brown or someone doing it where they stopped a bullet with a phone book. So he held it up and she had to shoot him in the camera and the bullet went straight through the phone book <laughs> and killed him. And she was fucking. like, you done for manslaughter? And I was like, no, it should, it should be murder. Yeah. Manslaughter. You, you killed him. Yeah. You shot a gun at his chest. It's, oh, it's he, he asked me it's complete one of you just to then went this is fucking stupid it's complete Darwinism man <laughs> just, it's like honestly the, the world is full of idiots right what do you think of how it ends now I think it's quite I think it's an okay twist that the fact that he finds the body and he cleans it all up and presents it back to the the woman in black and I think he eventually puts it in digs open her coffin and puts it in the yeah. coffin that and probably pisses her off more because you're desecrating a corpse. Well, that that's point. the thing. It's like it's good that it doesn't. That doesn't solve the problem. And I thought, as and I don't know if they actually say it, but it's I certainly got the impression that when we got to the end, he finds the body, gives it back to the the ghost to say sorry, we found your son. It's like that doesn't fix it. I'm like, maybe she was mentally ill, and, and not, she deserved that, to get her kids taken off her. Is that not heavily implied? Oh she yeah, maybe I, I heavily implied then, yeah. Because then that would be why she was killing the kids, because you've got to be off your fucking head mm-hmm. if you're just going about knocking Some Some wheels. kids can be fucking wee dicks, so. though. But I... No, I guess not, I guess not all of them. Mm. Burn them and build you apparently to keep them safe while you chain them to the <laughs> So the ending I thought was a bit too kind of fatefully romantic. It was really... Oh, I, I, wait, can we jump back a bit first? Aye, we'll get there. See, at the end, the jump scare sequence when it is in the in the house and um, Arthur's up in the room trying to give the body back to the woman in black and uh, Sam, the old man, the rich guy, mm-hmm. is downstairs and his dead son comes as a ghost to lead him into the other room mm-hmm. so they can shut the door to then give Daniel Radcliffe a fright upstairs because that's the thing where he goes over at the body and she's behind him and he turns around and it's like, it screams and like uh, goes flies in his face, and that one I'm like, ah, oh, that's the kind of cheap. That's the cheap one because we've seen that before. We've seen that in the internet videos. This scream run at the camera. It I doesn't th- run at the camera. Thought, it runs to the side. I but, still thought it was well done. Yeah. I, I liked it. I didn't like it as much as the the ones that aren't as obvious, but I think because I was kind of then, I was on edge with the other scares. Yeah. That at the time that one it, it got me. It, obviously I'm not, not really scared but I was still like oh you bastard you. Yeah. I like you yeah so you've got to say about the ending then I the fact that do you want to reveal the ending or reveal Ma, the ending? no you reveal the ending I've only got a wee half a note so the the little boy then walks onto the train tracks as they're going to leave yeah because they come and meet him at the train station after it's yeah. all finished so basically the woman black is kind of wearing him onto the train tracks Daniel Radcliffe jumps on. Train comes. You think he's jumped out of the way. Daniel Radcliffe turns around and realizes that an empty station. But it's changed color. Like it's, you it's can a kind see of it. Yeah. Greeny, black yep. and white. It's not good. It's not really black and white. It's like a kind of green hue to it. Yeah. Uh, and his wife, who well, obviously his wife, you've never actually really seen her. 
or have you? You've seen her in a flashback. You've seen a picture. Aye, you've seen her body. So she comes from the tracks. She's still on the train tracks. They hug, they kiss, and they kind of walk into the distance. That, I think, is too... Let's say it's too romantic yeah. an ending. For a movie that's been quite scary the whole way through and tense, it would have been good for the darkness in me if it ended with... The boy dying. Oh, no, but, uh, the boy dying or both of them dying. Yeah, both of, and we, die stay, we stayed on... Or even give us an alternate ending where you get to see Sam and the nanny watching for the train tracks and being like, oh, fuck, and end I, it there. Rather than rather than seeing Daniel Radcliffe's ghost version on the tracks being I, like, oh, no, I'm in the ghost world with my wife. Ooh, let's walk away into the distance. You do kind of see them looking, you yeah. see them reacting as if, oh, my God, they're dead, and they end it there. Yeah. Or just have them going away, which like just I think would be a rubbish ending, but... I, I think it would be better than the, the romantic one. Yeah. The romantic thing I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't quite up for. Yeah, it was quite, it's quick because I was like, it's a happy sad end and they die but they get to get back with the mum. The nanny's gutted. But it <laughs> is like, I mean, it's like, that's, a, a father and son has just been ran down with a train. Their bodies are in like 10 different bits uh-huh. each but we get to see them walk away along the tracks and having a good time. I'd rather actually, it showed you the faces of the nanny and the rich guy reacting. Yeah. And then cut. Yeah. So then you can make up your mind whether well, they're they dead and they've joined or maybe they didn't get hurt or maybe they're happy they've saved. Let you make up your mind. Yeah. Don't force it that oh this is now a happy ghost family. Because yeah. I don't believe in ghosts so no. uh, you, you've lost me. Like, so what, what is happening? Does he turn back and see the woman in black who was at the other side of the station and go oh cheers woman in black thank yeah. you. Like, <laughs> is, that, is that how is that how that ends? Because yeah you're right the ending totally does let it down. That last like Two or three seconds, let it down. Overall, I gave it a seven, which I, I see we've given everyone a seven now. But uh, a great atmosphere, brilliant sound, and a great return to the genre for Hammer, which I'm delighted about, and a great performance with Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah, I get not that. been topped since not not been topped until Swiss Army Man because he was outstanding. Swiss, Swiss Army Man was, was great. Was quite good. Uh, and I love this movie. It's been Hollywoodized though, but I still love it. And I've got a soft spot for it because of the way I watched the original, because of the stage show, um, and it's just really good stuff. And I gave it eight soggy dead child bodies out of ten. It's a horrible, horrible way to rate a movie there. Yep. So have you? Do you want to see the um, the stage show? Oh yeah, I'd love to. I've I want to talk about the stage show so much, but I really can't spoil it because. It's I know that there's a lot of fucking things where they appear next day and stuff like that, and they uh, no, that didn't happen. No, that didn't happen. Is it not? No, no, it's not interactive. I heard that the, like they come out a see like the aisle between you. Aye, there's like the ghost fucking woman appears down there. I don't know. Maybe maybe where I was sitting, we were in like the second row, so maybe if we didn't see her at the back, maybe she was kind of kicking about. But it's like it's done in such a way that it is absolutely fantastic, and I recommend everybody, even if you don't like scary things, go and see. The Women in Black stage show. I'll go back and see it again if it comes back to Glasgow I in a second. I think it was maybe in Edinburgh it's been or it's going to be, yeah. but we'll look at it because I definitely, uh, I definitely do. It's really, really, really good. There's a way that it starts off that is explained within the first maybe like 10 lines. Uh-huh. So it's like a different setup from the movie because they've changed it. Like, uh-huh. oh, I think the stage show came first, so it's, it is different from how the movie plays out because it's in a different medium. But the way that it starts prompted somebody to leave our, our show oh, within really? the first five minutes yeah mm. 
I don't I don't want you to ruin it because yeah. I kinda want to be surprised by it, but I don't know when I'll see it. It could be years. Honestly, it's so good. So so good. I'll definitely check it out. The T V one I'll check out as well. I will yeah. not tonight. I'm not <laughs> I'm not feeling up to that tonight. Scott and Liam's top five. Because it's Hammer, I thought I would do a top five Hammer films of, like, my personal one. I've been kind of thinking about this all week. It's actually been doing my head in because it keeps changing. And after I say the five, within about ten minutes, the five will have changed again. Because I like so many more. And then the, my number one isn't always my number one, to be honest. No, tell a lie, my number one is always my number one. Everything else is kind of chops and changes. But number five, the Dracula. Christopher Lee, fucking outstanding. Number four is The Devil Rides Out. Christopher Lee, fucking outstanding. Number three is Dracula, Prince of Darkness, which was the sequel, which I preferred because... Have you seen it? No. No. The the way that they bring Dracula back is... In, I'm pretty sure Prince of Darkness was early 70s. Could be wrong. Mid-70s. They, they get a guy and they hang his body over Dracula's empty grave cut his neck so the blood like just kind of falls into it and then it's like it's actually done really well because you can but back then you probably couldn't see the, the scenes changing so you get a wee bit of a, a ghosty Christopher Lee and then it's more uh, sort of flesh yeah. and the bone and then it all mounds into it's Christopher Lee it's really well done it's fucking dark for the 70s so that's my favourite of the Dracula the Hammer movies number two is The Mummy because right. it was Christopher Lee again it's fucking sorry <laughs> to be honest it's my top five Christopher <laughs> Lee movies uh, and number one the Cursed Frankenstein and I think that'll always be my number one hammer because it, it's just fucking great you know just brilliant yeah you should watch them mm-hmm. I, well, I think I've got a lot of hammer <laughs> movies to catch up on I'd um, done top top five hammers so <laughs> coming in at five is your regular bog standard claw hammer uh, at number four We've got a mallet, a soft wooden mallet. For like tents? Yeah, for tents, yeah. <laughs> um, number three, we're yeah, going to go with the heel of a boot, which can sometimes be used as a hammer if, if need be. Would that be a hammer or top five hammer, hammer inspired? But I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit fast and loose with what I've um, Number two. You're just making us up right now. Yeah. Number two, <laughs> sledgehammer. Yeah. Um, and come at number one. MC Hammer. <laughs> Which is a throwback to an episode for two weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. I enjoyed that. <laughs> I was actually going to tee you up with telling you I'd do a Hammer Top 5 so you could pick my oh, yeah. <laughs> You got me off guard there, <laughs> uh, So, have you watched anything this week? Um, I don't think I have watched anything at all. Have you watched the Punisher series on Netflix? I watched them. Um, no, because I've seen uh, Kieran Fisher, who've been uh, on this show a couple of times. He was talking about it on Twitter, about how it's brilliant and brutal. And um, so I had to wade in this conversation he was having with his friend and, and say, uh, in fact, I think it was Nick Boyd he was talking to, who's also a, a listener at the show and interacts on Twitter and whatever else. And I say, when does he start? Because like, I'm watching episode one and all <laughs> it's been is sat on a roof eating pieces and talking. I was like, when does he start kicking folks' cunts in? See, Probably about twenty minutes after that scene, they start kicking folks. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, right. 
I don't. A lot of the the comic book hero things that went on Netflix and Amazon for series, I've not really watched. I've no. I've not been that bored. I know mm-hmm. Daredevil's meant to be brilliant because it's brutal and stuff. Yeah. But Daredevil, Daredevil was good, but I didn't really, I didn't see it all the way through. Um, I kind of lost my way with it. It was good, but it was like I, I, um, I've, heard, I've heard it's good, but I've no, I've not been inspired enough with it to, to I to persevere through any of it. But Punisher, just when my fucking face was sore, it started playing the trailer and then playing the episode, and I couldn't be fucking up yeah. to change it. So I just watched it, and I watched episode two, and then I watched episode three. And I watched episode four. I think I'm on like episode nine now, and it is actually good. It's what mm. well worth a watch. I'm definitely gonna give it a watch because John Berenthal's uh, plays the Punisher and he is a Walking <laughs> Dead alumni, so I am. Uh, I don't. Before this, I did not like him because I think he's got a weird fucking face. Yeah. I don't like him in the Walking Dead. Well, it just shows you that anybody can make it. In but TV. he's good as Frank Castle yeah. because you do need a kind of ugly bad bastard mm-hmm. to be. Somebody just looks like he's been punching the nose quite a few times. Oh, yeah. he has been. He's got a fucking more punched looking nose than I have and <laughs> apparently my nose looks very punched because an old man came out of my work not, I think I've talked to this in the podcast before and looked over at me when he was talking to John and he went ah so the boy's a boxer <laughs> and John went hey so, oh just with the nose and that I was like you <laughs> cheeky cheeky old bastard I have never had my nose broken but you say take your business and get to fuck so I say he's an old miserable cunt so mm. he's not been back in he maybe did ah. who the <laughs> fuck he is I don't hope he is that. It's a horrible <laughs> thing to say. I hope he's not there. <laughs> uh, and have I ever made you watch Mean Creek? Have you ever watched it? Mean Creek. Mean Creek. What is Mean Creek? It's mean Creek is the one where the wee boys take jo- uh, John Faye, jo- J- Drake and Josh, for <laughs> fuck's sake. Mean Creek is the when movie... Fucking hell. <laughs> is that how you've been MC Hammer? Mean Creek <laughs> is the movie where the Scotty from Eurotrip takes Fat One Faye, Drake and Josh into the woods and kill him. Yes. Yes, I've seen that. It's a good film. I liked it. Didn't get a lot as much credit as it should. Why are you talking about that? Because <laughs> I was going to say it's on Netflix. Although I went to see it the cinema when it first came out. Yeah. Loved it. I actually watched it again because it came on yeah. Netflix. I was like, shit, watch that again. To be honest, if if you thought that sounded good and you're going to watch it, Scott has just fucking ruined it no, for no. you. Oh, yeah. Oh, I told yeah, you so Oh, shit. It doesn't really matter <laughs> if you want to watch it. You, you should still go and watch it now, but you do know kind of basically <laughs> 75% of the way <laughs> through it it is pretty good though it's a very good movie but you did just fucking do it <laughs> so not even a spoiler let's go no sorry it. sorry about that guys uh, so yeah that's it anything else um yeah well I've just a couple of things to talk about um can I just make one small point <laughs> if you want the other week there I was in a mosque and I got to see people praying why? And oh, it's just something that I do, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and let me tell you, right now, this uh, this isn't against Muslims. This is against all religions. I'm like, what the fuck's the point? Do you know what I mean? Like, see, like, like the amount of effort that goes in to like all stand in a row, facing the same way, and praying, and listening to the guy singing, and telling you when to bow and pray and do the actions, and you need to do that if you're following the this specific religion, you need to do that five times a day. That is a lot of effort to then die and find out that it was all for fuck all. But do they die and find out it's for fuck all? Yeah. Or how do you know? Because they do. Because if they didn't, then there'd be ghosts telling us that it's worth it. And you say there's no ghosts, so therefore no, there's no God. If you die and you've went to heaven, why would you come back as a ghost? Heaven's way better. There's no heaven. But 
maybe the fact that there's no ghosts is a sign that there is heaven because you're somewhere better. Then why it's come just, back and visit? Do you know, and that's not just for 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 Muslims; it's for Catholics and Protestants. Well, Protestants they just get to be religious without really doing anything anyway, so that's <laughs> they're they're probably the lucky ones. Um, Catholics and Muslims, probably Jews as well. I don't really know very much about Jews. <laughs> is there anything else you might offend? I know. Yeah, uh, I don't know. The see, right see if it if it brings them peace or it, it gives them comfort, then what the fuck does it matter? Yeah, I get. I do get. All, all I understand faith, but where's the fucking point? If you want to pay once a day, I don't know, man. That <laughs> seems like a lot of work. <laughs> if you want to pay once a day, five thousand times a day, if it brings you something, and I think that's why a lot of older folk. Find religion because it brings them comfort. Because they've got nothing Even else to if do. they know it's all bullshit. Because they're just sitting in with one bar and their fire on and waiting to die. Aye. Yeah. So if it, even if they know it's all bullshit, if it brings them a wee bit of comfort as they get closer to the, the to death to the, the the big light, then who are we to knock it, Scott? It was a it was a very peaceful place. Uh, I didn't feel um, I wasn't made to feel unwelcome. Um, I was able to witness them all praying, and then we left and. And that's that's that what was it was. Yeah, they uh, they also said over the thing about how they're going to do some stuff for charity for Glasgow, um, feeding the homeless and the refugees, not all Muslims. You know, they'll they'll feed everybody. So that is there is. I mean, it's a it's a you peaceful. Still explain why you were in a mosque. I'm not saying that as why the fuck you're in a mosque. Why we why were you in any sort of holy place? I was exploring it to see if I would be interested in converting. Were you actually? Yeah. Are you more looking for something for your wedding? Yeah. <laughs> you think you're mind a mosque? Right, anyway, right, let's 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 get to the end here now. Uh, I want to talk about Fright Fest. Okay. This is our this is our anniversary party because this is where we started uh, and we've done it again this year and then it's coming back again next year. The dates have been announced, the second and third of March. I was under the impression that it was always a Saturday Sunday, but uh, it turns out you told me that no it <laughs> is. Apparently every year we've been it's been a Friday Saturday. <laughs> um I actually tweeted Fright Fest and says, Hey guys, what's the deal with being on a Friday Saturday this year? And uh, then I was told off you that um, no, it was always a Friday Saturday. Did they reply? No. It was actually Lena that said, "Why did Scott tweet Friday Fest asking why it was a Friday? Uh, why it was a Friday Saturday? It always is." And it kind of dawned on me. I was like, oh, "Shit, I always take a day off work. Of course it is." But anyway, it's coming up. It's, the dates have been announced. Uh, so the movies are getting announced at the start of January next year, and then the tickets are on sale shortly after that. So we'll be getting ours if you're in Glasgow. Or can can I pick the seats this time? Yeah, no, it was just it's been the uh, get the get the back row. Back row. Well, no, 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 uh, don't. Yeah, maybe. don't. The, the back row is really shit. Shit, it was shit. Especially the ones right at the aisle when you get shit. extra legroom in that. But we'll get one. It like we'll get one with extra legroom and one just in, so we can hide all stashy drinks. Oh yeah. But you also get the extra legroom. I've kind of worked out the yeah, best two right, seats. You, the yeah, you got them. Uh, so that's coming up, and we decided to try and plan a couple of things for our anniversary. Make it a big deal this year. Uh, we'll the first be, time in history of Scott and Lee versus Evil where we've actually tried to plan something I will we'll plan something and we'll actually see it through <laughs> um, so we won't tell you what that is now because there's a good chance that we'll fuck this up but we're, we're, we've got some good things in the pipeline we're going to try and uh, make them uh, see them through make them come to fruition one of those uh, before the anniversary is going to be the Jaws alternate commentary and we're going to try and make that work because Liam's determined to make me see that Jaws isn't shite it's not and, just it's not just Liam, the, the entire Facebook group, <laughs> and everybody that was at the popcorn horror convention, all are convinced that you should watch Jaws and see it for how good it is. So, I I, and, and when we do that alternate commentary, I will watch it 
and try and take like not rip the picture that just like for the sake of it and picture that I'll make Aye. we'll make jokes as we go or whatever, but I won't put it down for sake of try to say that I'm better than it because if I like it and enjoy it mm. then then I'll and I'm prepared to give it its juice. I also think we'll try and prepare and carry out another live stream. But if any of our old fans of this show and were there for the first two live streams, you'll know how fucking ridiculous <laughs> they ended up. And maybe that's what he's wanting to see, so maybe we will actually do it again. Well, let, let us know if that's what you want to see because it does just descend into absolute chaos. But the first one we done, if Fenny's can remember that far back when we, when we watched uh, Chucky live, uh, and we got so drunk that the movie played through twice and we just kept talking. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, there was literally at one point there was like two people still watching yeah. we like, oh, just come back, it'll be fucking fine. <laughs> uh, and in the second live stream, I think I went on for about three and a half. <laughs> that was the Halloween live stream. Hours. That was just a fucking riot. The pants were off, and then at the end of it, what happened after <laughs> the cameras went off, it was the only time in my life I've been 100% convinced that if things really went wrong, I would bury you in the forest, <laughs> you and Sandy. Like, I generally thought, it's fine. Like, I've got, I've got woods right outside my house. It's fine. I'll just dig a fucking six six foot four hole. Just put you in it. How would you fit in it? I'm six foot five. I'm just going to leave a bit of your head standing All <laughs> right, okay. I don't like you enough. What, you bury me standing up? I, I, yeah. I don't like you enough to give you a... No, a six foot four long. Home. Right. I don't like get like I don't like get enough to give you a respectful burying oh. of your full body. I leave you. the top of your head just so dogs and that can still piss on you. No, thank, uh, thank you very much. Six foot four would definitely cover Sandy, so yeah. he'd, be, he'd be fully buried. <laughs> but it was him that we did need to get out. <laughs> and really, I'm not the I'm not the friend to lean on in a crisis. So if you uh, <laughs> if you if you listeners fancy seeing. Um, another live stream uh, then, then then let us know in the Facebook group and if you're a listener who's not in the Facebook group then fuck you playing it search for us on Facebook you can get us at Scott and Liam versus Evil we're on Twitter we're on Instagram if you just search for Scott and Liam versus Evil on Google we come up on like four or five different results so just get in and get about it uh, on Apple Podcasts get on there and rate us five stars Give us a written review as well so other people know what they're getting into. Help us get on some kind of charts or climb charts and, you know, keep, you know, we enjoy doing this. And if you're still listening, then you'd obviously enjoy it too. Hopefully. Hopefully. Uh, now here is chapter two of One Spitting, Twice Die, written by Anthony J. Stanton. And remember, if you like what you hear, get across to Amazon, buy it, get across to iTunes, buy it. Ask us for the links if you can't seem to find it. And, as Scott says, enjoy. Once Bitten, Twice Die. Book One from the Blood of the Infected series by Anthony J. Stanton. Narrated by Anthony J. Stanton. Chapter Two. As Captain Lewis and his soldiers sped through the deserted streets towards their safe haven, all the devastation was a clear reminder of what had led to their current circumstances. The gruesome proof was all around. Lewis had a rough idea of what had triggered the chain of events that was inevitable. The name of GVF Laboratories was very familiar to them all, as was the Dembuster drug. However, he did not know exactly how things had gone so terribly wrong, nor the name of the man chiefly responsible for their precipitous situation now, Dr. Boxall. 
several months before and little distance from RAF Headley Court, towards the northwest of London, Dr. Jason Boxall had finished work and returned home. His daughter, Isabel, greeted him at the front door with a kiss. With her freckles and shoulder-length brown hair, she was a little carbon copy of her mother, Julia. As Jason joined his wife in the kitchen, he called out, Mum, dinner! But there was no answer. How's she been today, Jules? Same, same, she replied. She's been upstairs most of the day. I got her out of bed around nine and brought her down, but she went back just after lunch. She just seemed to want to watch TV in her room. Julia could see the pain in her husband's eyes as she spoke and put an arm around his shoulders. She's fine, really. She's happy. Yeah, I guess. He lapsed into silence. Several years before, his mother had been diagnosed with Pick's disease, a form of dementia similar to Alzheimer's. Her mental functioning had declined considerably in recent months, and she was now becoming a hazard to herself, so Julia and Jason had decided to look after her in their own home. Jason was happy that they were able to do this, but it did not assuage his feeling of guilt. He knew his mother would have loved to have visited more often over the previous years, but somehow they had not made enough time for her until it was too late. Jason realised now to his cost that those were precious years that he would never get back. Dementia is an insidious fiend that steals into your home when you are not looking, sits down next to you on the sofa, and before you realise it has made itself an unavoidable part of your life, stealing away the person that was once there and leaving nothing more than a husk, bearing scant resemblance to whom the person once was. For him, the guilt would always be there, but at least they could now take care of her. When he went up to her room, she was sat in a faded red armchair in the corner, watching the television. She turned and stared vacantly at him for a long moment, before offering a limp smile, but he was not sure if that was a sign of recognition or just a reflex action. It's dinner time, Mum. Are you hungry? he asked. Yes, dear, she replied, and made a muted kind of laughing sound, like a swan's hiss. He looked into her eyes and she returned his glance, without any obvious emotion at first, but then, as though she could read his mind, she patted his arm. It's okay, dear, it'll be all right, she smiled. He wasn't quite sure to what she was referring, but her positive reaction gave him a fleeting warm glimmer. He wondered exactly when she had stopped being the woman she once was, when her personality and humanity had died. When they had all finished dinner, Isabel went to slip off her chair but Jason tapped his water glass with his fork. Attention, attention. Boxall family meeting in progress. Oh, Daddy, but I want to go and play. Well, you know the rules. Meeting first. There may even be something that you want to add. There may even be talk of your birthday if you stick around long enough. I want add something, Rory piped up. Of course you do, my love. Julia grabbed his head and kissed the top of it. You always want to add something. Usually a ruddy great mess. Okay, Jason continued. It's been a pleasure for us to have Nanny Boxall staying with us for the last couple of weeks, hasn't it? How would you like it if she stayed with us for a little longer? Rory cheered, but Isabel paused in consideration for a moment before speaking, her six-year-old brain already learning the subtleties of feminine guile. That's really great. So she will be here for my birthday? Yes, Poppet. Does that mean I will get an extra present from her? Julia laughed. Yes, of course you will. 
In fact, they had already bought her present on behalf of Nanny Boxall, a furry rucksack in the shape of a dog's face with floppy ears and a big brown nose. Great, I do have one other thing to add, Isabel said with a sly look. Yes? Julia arched her eyebrows inquiringly, trying to contain the smirk. Now can we talk about my birthday party, please? After the children had gone to bed, Jason and Julia sat in the living room with a bottle of wine. Jason took a slow swig and turned to his wife. That was not the only thing we had to discuss tonight. Not for the first time that evening, she arched her eyebrows but said nothing, waiting for him to proceed. He cleared his throat. <clears throat> it seems uh, I'm being promoted at work, kind of. Really? That's fantastic. Kind of. What does that mean? There is a new project that I'm going to be involved with. It's being pushed through as top priority and getting unlimited funding, kind of. He could not contain his grin, and she could tell he was bursting to blurt it all out, but was teasing her with the slow drip feed of information. Yes? Again, the eyebrow, this time accompanied with a gentle pinch of his leg. Well, go on then, tell me. As you know, I've been involved with neurological synaptic networks, their functionality and connectivity and... Whoa! Hold your horses there, Einstein. Layman's terms, please, else you get to do the washing up for a week. She was a smart lady, but he was a neurological scientist, and when he started talking about mitochondrial synaptic junctions, it left her, like most people, feeling a little lost. She had fond memories of when they first met at a friend's dinner party. They had been placed together, although her friend subsequently swore that there was no intended element of matchmaking. In fact, her friend had hoped to set her up with the man sat on her other side, a TV producer called Gavin. But he had been chatting to the lady on his right all night, so Julia and Jason had spent most of the night talking. When she had found out that he was a brain scientist, she had mocked him by yawning and pretending to fall asleep in her dish, poking herself in the face with a spoon in the process, and splattering soup on the tablecloth, which set them both off giggling. She challenged him to tell her the most interesting fact he could think of about brains. Well, did you know that there are more potential pathways to connect the cells in the average human brain than there are molecules in the known universe? Wow, she had been genuinely amazed, although she did not really know what synaptic pathways were or what function they served, but she was impressed by this statistic nonetheless. So what do these pathways do then, and why is it so important that there are so many of them? As he had started to explain, she became a little lost, but found herself desperate to understand and appear intelligent. She remembered thinking how intense and piercingly blue his eyes seemed, and she felt herself being drawn in. She had liked this man right from the start, although she had no idea why, and she found herself laughing a little too readily at his jokes. Several years and two children later, and she had given up work at least until Rory, their youngest, was old enough to join his sister at primary school in just under a year. Jason was now employed by a small yet esteemed company in the neurological research industry. He himself was also highly regarded in his field and never short of well-paid offers from rivals. He was extremely good at his job. What he was not so good at was describing what he did in layman's terms. He tried to explain. I have been investigating how electrical charges flow between cells in the brain, how the patterns of these flows relate to a person's thought processes, storage of memory, etc., etc. He paused to ensure she was following him. Hmm, she gave a faint nod. 
Well, we have always been notoriously underfunded. Compared with companies in the US, we work on peanuts. Now, however, it seems that some wealthy hotshot called Gotham van Furstenberg has taken an interest, and we are going to get an unexpected cash injection. He's been bankrolling a company that researches certain brain diseases, including types of dementia. Uh, this is what our studies have been dabbling in for a while, only he has been looking at these issues from a genetic point of view. It seems he's really keen to try to come up with a cure for dementia as soon as possible. Really, Julia said. I thought that dementia meant the brain was slowly dying, and since dead brain cells can't be repaired or replaced, there's no cure for it. Not exactly. Yes, dementia does mean that brain cells are, in effect, dying. However, considering the brain is really only three pounds of gelatinous mulch, it is the most incredible organ. In the last 20 years, our understanding of it has improved drastically, but we still have a heck of a lot to learn. We used to think that once the cells of the brain died, through trauma, illness, even alcohol, he raised his glass and clinked hers. Then that was it. There was no getting them back. But that is not necessarily the accepted truth anymore. Certainly, the brain can learn to adapt, and other areas can relearn the functions that are lost when one part of the brain is damaged. There is a possibility also that the damaged cells can even be repaired. We are working on both angles, but we are encouraging it to do this really quickly, sort of speeding up the metabolism of the brain so the chemical processes operate a lot faster. And how exactly does all this affect you? This Gotham van Furstenberg chap is in the process of buying our company and amalgamating it with his own. He was quoted in the press as saying something about dementia being a war against individual humanity, and he intends to develop a, a neurological nuke that will end the war once and for all. He wants to combine our research with his. Once we've introduced the elements of change, the brain will continue to adjust itself, evolving even as the damage repairs itself. I mean, we're talking about radical alteration in the DNA of how one's brain works. With the amount of funding we're going to have, we'll be able to do so much more than ever previously. His eyes were really lighting up now, and he was talking a lot faster. That's amazing, really. So... Who is Gotham van Furstenberg and what's his background? He's a billionaire of Indian-German descent living in London and his company is called GVF Laboratories. He isn't married and has no kids but wants to do something philanthropic with his money to leave his legacy for society. I understand that his parents have both recently been diagnosed with different forms of dementia and so he decided to try and help them, hence the need for speed. I guess he wants to go down in history as the man responsible for curing dementia, sort of like a modern-day Marie Curie. A cash injection this large and all in one go means that we should be able to, to make huge progress in a really short space of time. They both paused, contemplating how this could affect people's lives, and especially their own, and that of Jason's mother. At that stage, they could not possibly have envisaged exactly how everybody's lives would indeed be altered forever. There was the sound of light footsteps on the stairs, followed by the living room door creaking open, and a sleepy young girl wandered in, rubbing her eyes. Julia rose first. Are you okay, darling? I had a nightmare about Nanny. In the ensuing weeks and months, Jason's job at GVF Laboratories was more intense than ever before. Typically, when he arrived home at the end of the day, he would check on his mother. 
slowly her mental state declined. One evening, over another glass of wine, the conversation returned to his project. How's work? Julia asked. Any developments? Huh? Oh, yes. Actually, we have been making considerable progress. We've been hampered a little by some internal politics, though. What's the problem? Van Furstenberg has stated he is not keen on animal testing, so we are having to find alternative methods which are making matters more difficult. Wouldn't that be a good thing, though? Not harming innocent animals? This is true, Jason sighed. This was an issue that he had struggled with, like most people involved with such research. No one actually likes testing any medical procedures on animals, but unfortunately, in this business, there really is very little substitute. I mean, it is possible in some cases to use alternatives, such as growing human tissue cultures or computer modelling, and we do both. But unfortunately, these methods are just not accurate enough. Doing experiments on animals is almost as realistic as experimenting on humans. Almost. So we will be doing some animal testing, just not nearly as much as we would do normally. We've had a few breakthroughs, though. At the moment, we're making some really aggressive DNA modifications that speed up the cell functioning like crazy. I told you before that Gotham van Furstenberg is keen to push this ahead as fast as possible, possibly even too fast. It's caused a few problems trying to slow things up and performing enough of the correct trials. But anyway, the point is that all the results look promising and he wants to go ahead with human clinical trials. But surely he's not the expert, you are. Do you think it's too soon for that? No, you're quite right, he's not the expert, but he is the money. Without his backing, we would certainly not have made the advances that we have made to date, not in my lifetime anyway. It's sooner than we would have liked, but it is safe. Well, that's incredible. And? Hmm, well, they're looking for volunteers, human guinea pigs with advanced dementia of various types. You'd be surprised exactly how few people actually have advanced picks in the UK. Ah, and you were considering volunteering your mother? It was not a question, just an uncomfortable realisation. Yes. With virtually all new drugs or medical procedures, there will come a time where you need to test the results on humans. This has just come slightly sooner than we would have liked. Now, the life expectancy of a sufferer of PICS can be as little as three years from diagnosis to as long as ten years in some. My mother was diagnosed with this, what, six years ago? So we really are living on borrowed time. It's her best chance, her, her last chance, and I really think it will work. What exactly does it involve? Julia's natural sense of caution meant that she did not particularly like the sound of this plan, but then what other options did they have? As with Van Furstenberg's parents, time was running out. There is a long course of drugs to take that may have some unpleasant side effects for some, such as nausea or headaches. There will be some therapy called transcranial magnetic stimulation, which involves using electromagnets to excite deep areas of brain tissue, and a little radiography will help with the stimulation. The drugs will be administered over the period of about a week, then a couple of weeks off, and repeated several times. 
Are you sure that you are not rushing into this because of your mother? Absolutely not. Not all research programs progress at the same rate. This is just one of the faster ones. Julia took a deep breath. This really was a big decision to take, but if he was sure, well then, I guess it's the right thing to do for her. They both laughed a little nervously. Think I need another drink. You? Until recently, the drug had unofficially been named the Dembuster, a reference to the Dam Busters squadron of the Second World War, implying its triumph over dementia and alluding to Van Furstenberg's mention of developing a brain bomb. Now, however, it had been given an official brand name, Nemolos, taken from Nemocene, the titaness of Greek mythology, daughter of Gaia and Uranus, and the personification of memory. Jason's mother was taken for a rigorous screening procedure. The medical research facility of GVF Laboratories was to the northeast of London, just outside the city of Cambridge. It had a small unit that provided accommodation for patients. Standing blankly by the front door, waiting for Jason to bring her suitcase down, she looked lost and afraid. Julia had to go into the kitchen to avoid the children seeing her with tears in her eyes. However, the programme went smoothly for her. After just over a week, she was released and Jason took her home until the second stage of drugs were to be administered. Julia and the children were all waiting for her when she arrived back. On seeing her walk unsteadily through the front door, Julia burst into tears and flung her arms around her. Jason's mother stood for a second, not reacting, then slowly returned a frail hug. Over the next week, she seemed to recover quickly, but she did experience some side effects in the form of nausea and terrible headaches. She had always been fairly steady on her feet, but now, a couple of times, she stumbled and fell. Otherwise, so far, everything seemed well. Extensive clinical trials were required before a license could be obtained to produce the drug commercially. In order to speed up the process, GVF took an innovative approach and involved large pharmaceutical concerns from overseas. Human volunteers were found initially in 12 other European countries with more non-European nations added as the tests proceeded. This was an unusual arrangement, and although nobody could have predicted, it contributed significantly to the events due to unfold. In days and weeks to come, Jason would have time to rue some of the decisions made and how they foolishly thought they were infallible. Although, like some of his colleagues, he was uncomfortable with the speed with which the human tests were pushed through, he was not vocal enough in his protestations to make a difference. They were all swept along with the euphoria of the huge financial boost from Van Furstenberg and his unshakable desire to succeed, and Jason in particular, with his own agenda to cure Nanny Boxall. They were so concerned with developing this neurological nuke that they forgot to treat Mother Nature with the respect that she deserves. Instead, they showed her an arrogant level of disdain. And sometimes, Mother Nature bites back. More sessions of drugs followed. Always, though, at the back of Jason's mind were the doubts. Were they going too fast? Were the normal safety procedures being ignored? His fears were mainly that the drugs would not work as they hoped, and they would ruin this unique opportunity to achieve excellence and cure dementia. 
Nanny Boxall gradually became more responsive. She would often look up with a smile as Jason checked on her or would speak of her own volition. To Jason, these were priceless moments that helped to assuage his concerns. However, his worries were trivial in comparison with the horror that even now was building. Finally, the drug was released onto the open market with huge acclaim and a celebratory party for significant employees, of which Jason was one of the most important. He received a special mention at the party, which he found highly embarrassing, and a promise of a pay rise, which he found highly agreeable. As Nemolos had been created in such unusually international circumstances, the promotion of it was immediately opened up to medical practitioners all across the globe. The world press had incredible coverage of this new wonder drug, and the nickname Dembuster became better known than the actual brand name. After a couple of days, the media, always notoriously fickle, and with the attention span somewhat akin to the dementia sufferers that GVF was seeking to cure, turned its gaze elsewhere. Although Nemolos was now being prescribed freely, they continued to examine its long-term effects in the laboratory. It was having excellent results with neurological recovery. What was not so good, however, was that in a small yet growing number of cases, there were unpleasant examples of personality change. People with dementia are often fairly amiable and pliable, having lost aggressive instincts, along with most other basic drives. But, increasingly, those taking Nemolos were starting to become irascible. In a smaller number of instances, that irascibility was becoming something decidedly more unwelcome. A short while after its release date, Jason returned home from work to find Julia looking disturbed. When the children were out of earshot, he asked what was bothering her. It's nothing, really. I'm sure I'm being silly. It's just that earlier, when I was in your mother's room, I was chatting away to her and she told me to shut up. What? Jason was stunned. It was very unlike his mother to be bad-tempered, but also he wondered whether the drugs were reversing a decline to such an extent that some of her emotions and instincts were returning. He was not sure whether to be disturbed or delighted by this news. Julia looked distraught. I mean, for starters, I didn't know she was capable of having or even expressing feelings anymore, but also it was the aggression with which she said it. It may just be that as the drugs take effect, emotions start to come back in a random order. The brain is trying to juggle with an awful lot of change and things get a bit confused in there. Or maybe she did not really know what she was saying. Let's face it, she has been talking garbage for quite a while now. Oh, she knew what she was saying all right. She even turned and glared at me when she spoke. She said daft things to me before, but this was different. This time it was as though there was real hatred. There had been vague mention of such incidences with other volunteers from the Nemolos program. However, these were people he did not personally know, so it was easier to write them off as overreactions. To hear this report about his own mother was very disturbing. He went upstairs to check on her, but she was asleep, breathing in a soft, rasping rhythm. She looked more at peace now than she ever did while awake, and he could almost believe that she was her normal self again. He sat on the chair in the corner watching her for a while and feeling decidedly troubled. A couple of days later and her headaches returned. She would lie in bed moaning and sweating at night and although she was indeed becoming more vocal and communicative, 
she was not quite coherent enough to formulate complex sentences. It was like trying to deduce from an 18-month-old child what is bothering it. Jason wondered whether that frustration, brought on by pain, was the reason for the irritable behaviour. Despite the drug having attracted a huge amount of press coverage, the first attack, ironically, went by virtually unnoticed by the media. An elderly man called Howie, who lived with his wife in Stuttgart, Germany, had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's six years previously. He had been put forward by his family doctor, Dr. Rourke, for the initial trials, and although there had been some doubt over his suitability, Dr. Rourke was most insistent, and they had pressed ahead anyway. Herr Howie had completed the first two courses of Nemolos, but the side effects had been so severe that he had been withdrawn. One Sunday afternoon, after he had been removed from the trials, Frau Howie was in her garden. She looked up to see her husband advancing towards her. He looked distracted and seemed irritated by something. She had risen to her feet, and as he neared, he had suddenly struck her, knocking her to the floor. The neighbours, a quintessentially English couple called the Clarksons, were in their garden at the time. They heard a commotion and peered over the fence, only to see Herr Howie crouching over his stricken wife and biting her. They rushed round and restrained him, Mr Clarkson receiving an injury on his wrist in the process. The four of them were taken to hospital. Herr Howie had calmed down already but was sedated. Mrs Clarkson was treated for shock and the other two were treated for bite wounds. Dr Rourke visited them in hospital but there was nothing to initially lead him to believe it was linked to Nemolos. The incident made page seven of the local newspaper, the Stuttgarter Zeitung, but otherwise it went unnoticed. It was only a few days later when Dr. Rourke was in his surgery, he came across some information pertaining to the drug trials. Out of professional courtesy, he rang his local connection associated with GVF to mention the incident. His report eventually found its way to GVF laboratories in Cambridge and finished its journey in the office of a man who worked near Dr. Boxall, where such post-trial information was being collated. The second attack happened a week after the Howie occurrence in the town of Penn, just outside Manchester. A teenager walking to school saw an old man he knew called Mr Abra tottering out of his front door wearing only his pyjama trousers. The boy stopped and laughed at Abra, who seemed to take offence, turned and chased him. When he was later questioned, the youth said that the old man had been shouting something at him, but that it did not seem to make any sense, as though he was talking in tongues. After a short distance, the teenager realised he had outpaced his attacker and turned to see him instead, attacking another elderly gentleman. The gentleman, who was 84 years old, later had a heart attack and died. When the media got hold of this story, it made larger headlines in the UK, and the fact that Abra had been using Nemolos was mentioned this time. Now, alarm bells started to ring at GVF, although at this stage they were still reasonably muted. Dr. Boxall was summoned for a meeting the next day and asked to relay his research to some of the more senior managers. First, he returned to the animal section to check on progress and to speak to the head clinician, a small, twitchy man called Bennett, who had an impressively bushy moustache that he waxed to a point. When he looked at the moustache, Boxall could not help but think of the whiskers of the rats in the cages, especially since Bennett spent so much time amongst them. If any man was ever suited to their job, it was he. 
Bennett led him down the lines of cages that housed the rats, row upon row of them, stacked on workbenches that ran the length of the room. The room was austere, with white floors and scrubbed surfaces. The smell from the many rodents mingling with the scent of mass-produced cleaning products was quite nauseating at first until one got used to it. Foxall had worked there with Bennett for several long months in dispersing his theoretical computer modelling with live tests in the early stages of drug development, but he spent much less time there now and Bennett had more current information on the progress of the animals. Bennett briefed him as they strolled down the ranks of cages. Of course, a few of the specimens had died through natural causes. As you know, we don't include them as death from drug. Here are the statistics. He handed some charts to Boxall. They basically say that 95% of the test cases took to the drugs okay. The other five either DFD'd within the first couple of days or through other complications within the first week. Otherwise, as clinical trials go, it was remarkably smooth and straightforward, one of the better ones that I have ever seen. Boxall felt a brief flush of satisfaction with this news as they both knew how important he had been in the design of Nemolos. He was about to thank the man and leave to study the charts further when Bennett added an afterthought that made Boxall stop short. At least the earlier rats we used all seemed to go through the tests without problem. It was only the latest batch that for some reason has started to skew the stats somewhat. How do you mean? Boxall had a sudden feeling of alarm, those old nagging doubts coming back to the surface, chanting, I told you so. It's not that there have been many more DFDs. It's just the latest group of rats have exhibited behavioural changes. At first, we put it down to a coincidence. As you know, that kind of thing happens sometimes, but there were so many of them that we thought there must be more to it than that. I assume the drugs have been tweaked in the latter stage of development, and for some reason, it has just not agreed with them. Behavioural changes? What kind of changes? Well, recently the rats have been becoming quite aggressive. Often it is a struggle to get them out of their cage without claws and teeth flying everywhere. Three of my techies were bitten only last week. Most odd, I have never seen anything like it. The hair on Boxall's neck literally stood on end. For a second, the world receded and he felt faint. He had heard about the attack in Manchester, and whilst an isolated case is nothing to go by, the fact that the animal trials were reflecting the human reactions was worrying. Very worrying. He thanked Bennett without enthusiasm and left the laboratory as quickly as he could without wanting to seem in a rush. A small prickle of sweat already ran down his throat like a talon gently tracing a path over his skin. At 9.35 he arrived back in his office. Immediately, he checked the data from Bennett and then rechecked. The results were not conclusive, merely suggestive, but he was worried nonetheless. During the development phase of the programme, Boxall had commanded a team of up to eight technicians working directly for him, and he could still contact them and use them if he needed to. The next 25 minutes he spent doing just that. By half past ten, they were all assembled in his office and he quietly closed the door. It would be very easy to panic them, but at this stage there was not much to go on, nothing more than a disturbing hunch and the slightest spectre of a problem. He decided to keep it low-key and, for the moment, just to gather more information, just to be sure. It was five past eleven when they left the conference room. 
whilst apologising for the short notice he gave them all until three o'clock that afternoon to report back to him on their various assignments. No lunch breaks today, I'm afraid. No cigarette breaks. You've barely even got time to breathe. This takes precedence over everything else you are doing and over anything that anyone asks you to do. If someone has a problem with that, then tell them to come and talk to me about it. Is that understood? The last one out of the room closed the door, leaving Boxall alone with his thoughts and the ticking of the clock. His doubts were speaking to him again in the silence, and the one word he heard loudest was one of the most feared words in drug development. Mutation. He sat there pondering. Drugs do cause mutation over time, and viruses and diseases will evolve and adapt eventually. Such a fast alteration, however, was practically unheard of. Nemolos had been manufactured to target certain neurological functions and change the way the brain codes information. As such, it was, in reality, actually created to teach the brain to mutate after a fashion. Not only that, but it was designed to act quickly. Could it be that they had somehow got it wrong and it was indeed aggressively causing mutation, only not as they had planned? Until 12 o'clock, he looked through some of his notes that he had stored on his laptop. Then he donned his white lab coat and went back to see Bennett. Regardless of what his team of technicians found out, he decided to check over all of his work and retest the drugs. It was a little late to be doing this now, after Nemolos was already commercially available, but it would put his mind at rest. After all, had he not felt that the whole development programme had been forced through too quickly with insufficient animal trials? When he presented his findings to the medical board later that day, he would insist on a lot more testing in the laboratory. He returned to his office at 2.15. By three o'clock, he had received most of the data from his team. He sat watching the clock and fiddling nervously with a sheaf of papers. By half past three, they had all got back to him, and he went to see his managers, who were having coffee and biscuits in an office at the other end of the building. He entered the room, politely refusing the drinks he was offered. Boxall had regular dealings with the two men and knew them well. The woman he had met only a couple of times and knew mostly by reputation. His direct boss, Dr. Michael Rind, was wearing a light grey suit and yellow tie. He was a tall, slim man in his late fifties with thinning light brown hair in a side parting and always seemed to have a five o'clock shadow and a cup of black coffee. He was a neuroscientist like Boxall and had been ultimately responsible for overseeing the neurological aspects of the drug and liaising with other departments. After Boxall, more than anybody else, he understood the drug and its application and the two of them had worked closely throughout its development. Next to him sat Dr Robert Cannon, who had been responsible for integrating and coordinating the various aspects of medical science. He was a slim man who looked fit, was always extremely energetic and enthusiastic, and had very blonde hair and eyebrows, which, in certain lights, made him appear nearly albino. Dr Rind reported directly to him, and he, in turn, to Gotham van Furstenberg. He wore a standard grey suit with light pinstripes that seemed to lack imagination and was going threadbare at the elbows. Lastly, sat on the far right, was Miss Zoe Jenkins, who had recently been promoted to the position of general manager responsible for sales of Nemolos. She was relatively young for such a senior position, being only in her early 30s. She had a fine head of glossy red hair that clashed particularly badly with the red blouse that she wore. All three of them had clipboards resting purposefully on the table. Gentlemen, Miss Jenkins, I am sorry for being slightly late. Rind waved his hand, dismissing the need for apologies. 
You know, presumably, why we asked for this chat. There has been a media report of a patient from the trials acting aggressively, and clearly we need to cover ourselves. We would like a few facts so that we can exercise a little damage limitation with the press. We just need to know what caused the attack, if there have been any other incidents, and whether you think there is a significant likelihood of this happening again. Boxall placed his notes on the table in front of him and cleared his throat. I have got my technicians to gather whatever data they could since this morning. I looked into three main areas, animal tests, results from the human trials, and contacting as many of the volunteers' families as possible, or, failing that, their doctors. He paused and looked up, but none of them spoke. They were all scribbling furiously, so he continued. Firstly, the animal tests. He placed some graphs on the table in front of them. 95% of our test cases took to the final drug without problem. Of the 5% that died, 1% were from unrelated causes, 2% died within the first week of administering the drugs, likely due allergic reaction, and 2% lasted as long as two weeks before DFDing. Jenkins looked up in confusion. Well, what was that? DFDing? Sorry, dead from drug. In the tests, we found no signs of drug distortion and no side effects at all with the final drug compound. The only comment I would add is that today, the chief lab techie reported some possible behavioural change in the rats. The three of them paused and looked up intensely, waiting and not interrupting. Boxall continued uneasily. The rats have been exhibiting increased episodes of violent behaviour, although at this stage that could be for one of many reasons, such as, Jenkins interrupted sharply, Boxall could see quite clearly how she had been promoted so quickly. Well, we were initially limited to the number of animals or rats we were permitted to use, which meant that the trials that we did have were of a greater duration than normal, So it could just be a function of that, literally, that they have gone a bit stir-crazy. There have been previous studies into just that condition which suggested that this kind of behavioural change does sometimes occur. We're examining their diet to see if something might have affected them. Lastly, the strain of rat we have been using is not the typical kind used here in the UK. We imported them from Germany, so we're considering that possibility and contacting our counterparts there to find more info. Uh, Yes, please do, said Ryan, and get back to us as soon as you have anything more on that. Absolutely. Next were the results from the human trials. The trials officially ended a little over three months ago, and the drugs have been commercially available for the last month and a half. As we were short of time, we concentrated on those in the UK. We were able to get hold of the doctor involved in the case in Manchester. I'll come to that in a moment. Basically, all of the families and doctors we spoke to said that Nemelos had enhanced the patient's quality of life through improved memory, linguistic functioning and social skills. We estimate the improvement at the moment to be equivalent to roughly two years of steady dementia degeneration, and that should increase. Jenkins stopped writing for a moment and looked up. Were there any other side effects reported by the volunteers, character changes, increases in hostility or such like? she asked. There have been character changes, but to some extent at least we predicted that would happen. Dementia, by its very nature, involves changes in personality. As parts of the brain degenerate, people lose social norms, forget whom they are and how to act. 
our patients are regaining functions that they lost possibly years ago. And with that, they are re-experiencing some of the feelings of confusion that they will initially have had. But no one else has experienced an increased level of hostility like that in the pen incident. There have been isolated episodes of minor aggression, but not the same as in that case. We spoke to the doctor in Manchester. It seems that the patient, a man called Abra, was fairly hot-tempered in general, so it's possible that the incident had nothing to do with Nemalos, but just that he was reverting to type, perhaps exasperated by his condition. However, I am still not 100% on that, and I need to look into it a lot more. Oxel's last few words had been largely lost on the three of them due to the collective sigh of relief. In drug development, mutation may well be one of the most feared words. In the manufacturing industry in general, another is recall. There are various reasons why a product may be recalled, and most of them are health-related. Invariably, whatever the reason, the cost will be high, and if people have been harmed by faulty products, then the following lawsuits can be disastrous. Clearly, they did not want to hear that their drug was causing episodic violence. As they sat back and each started to express relief, Oxel's mind returned to his wife's words. This was different. This time, it was as though there was real hatred. Dr. Cannon put down his clipboard, clasped his hands on his knees, and smiled for the first time. That's great news, Jason. Just what we wanted to hear. You will obviously examine all this further, yes? Boxall nodded vigorously. Cannon's smile lessened, but he seemed genuinely keen to be of assistance. Is there anything we can do to help you? All I would like is to have my original team of eight lab techs back working exclusively for me for the foreseeable future. Also, given that the animal tests were cut down to the bare minimum originally, I would like to go back and extend those trials and complete them thoroughly. As I said, my findings are not yet conclusive and we really must look into it all a lot more. He stared at Cannon, expecting the worst. The other two also looked at Cannon, who sat thinking for a second, then nodded. Of course. Yes to all your requests. Put it in a brief memo to me and I will action it immediately. I know that Van Furstenberg did ideally want to limit animal tests, but I think this has been enough of a scare for us all and will do our PR some good. I am sure we can sanction at least a limited number of further tests. Leaving the meeting, Oxall felt an enormous sense of relief, although he was bothered by the word limited that Cannon had slipped in at the end of his sentence. As the data had been collected for him throughout the day, it had gone some way to allaying his fears, but only now could he relax a little. After a brief phone conversation with Bennett, he packed his laptop into his suitcase and left for home. The material he had presented to them had been correct, at least at that moment in time. Next morning, Jason sat in his kitchen having a leisurely cup of tea whilst contemplating his plan of action. Unbeknownst to him, this was to be one of the last happy moments he would have together with his family. Ariana Bugue had started using the Dembuster several weeks previously. She had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's three years before, and while she could still recognise her husband, Victor, and their children, she was rapidly becoming more forgetful and confused. On the final night of Victor's life, they had gone to sleep as normal. Despite her worsening condition, they still shared the same bed, 
as they had done for the last 42 years since immigrating to Brooklyn, New York from Holland. She had been experiencing more frequent and severe headaches over the past couple of weeks, but they were not serious enough to link them to any changes in medication. And the fact that she had suffered from migraines throughout most of her life, unfortunately, masked their significance. Victor would never again see daylight. That night, Ariana found herself in excruciating pain with the impression of blinding light thumping through the front of her head. Confused already, she tried to scream, but no words would form, just a wild, rasping noise that made her husband stir in his sleep, but not enough to rouse him to full consciousness and save his life. The pain continued, but as the radiance subsided, so did any last remnants of cognitive awareness. The agony gave rise to a ferocious rage that needed assuaging. Like an injured animal, she turned in the darkness and blindly attacked the person nearest to her, biting part of him that was exposed above the duvet, Victor's neck. Neighbours were alerted to a problem by a banging at around three in the morning. The police were phoned and Sergeant Gerard of the NYPD arrived at the Bugue house at approximately four o'clock. He could hear noises coming from within and was sufficiently worried to force open the door, only to find Ariana lying in the hall on her stomach. Her face was covered in blood and her legs skewed at an odd angle, as though she had broken them in a fall down the stairs. She was moaning something, although he could not make out any recognisable words as she tried to crawl towards him. As he knelt by her side, she grasped him by the wrist with surprising strength and pulled him down towards her. Because he thought she was going to whisper something to him, he did not struggle until he felt her teeth clamp on his ear. When reinforcements arrived, a search of the house was made, and the body of Mr. Bugue was discovered in bed with his throat ripped apart. The blood on Mrs. Bugue's face was found to be his, not, as Gerard has suspected, her own. Gerard was taken to hospital, and his half-severed ear was reattached. Two days later, he went into the police station to fill out a report and have a debrief with his commanding officer, although, by the time the meeting was over, he already had the first of the migraines, so he excused himself and returned home to bed. Gerard did not return to active police duty, and the headaches continued to get worse. He started to become irritable, withdrawn, and acting quite out of character. Although during this period he was bedridden a lot of the time, when he was able to go out of the house, he started to frequent a local lap-dancing club called Valentine's. He regularly withdrew large sums of money from his bank account, but by the end of the day had no recollection of what he had done with it. All the while, he was plagued by nausea, headaches, and a distinct feeling of paranoia. A clerk at his police station phoned after three days to check on him, but got no reply. He rang several more times without success, so his police lieutenant became concerned, and a squad car was sent to his house. There was no answer, but the two officers, Chevelle and Sparrowhawk, could see through the half-drawn curtains that the place was in disarray. Later that evening they returned, but there was still nobody home, so they decided to wait, which did not displease them, as there was a cafe opposite that served excellent coffee and pastries. Chevelle had not even had time to take the first bite of his chocolate praline donut before his radio crackled into life. Disturbance reported in Valentine's Bar on Union and 3rd. Officers needed to respond. Chevelle and Sparrowhawk currently on 5th and Garfield, Chevelle answered. We're going to Valentine's now. 
By the time they arrived, a small crowd had gathered. A few of the women who worked in the bar were standing in a huddle on the street corner sobbing. One, who they recognised by name, an exotic dancer by the name of Charity, wearing nothing more than a leopard print thong and a feather boa, was hysterical. Officer Sparrowhawk noted she had blood on her hands and neck from an open wound. There were also a few of the bar's clientele nearby. Two were sat on the ground looking stunned with temporary bandages applied to various body parts. It transpired that a man had gone berserk inside and attacked one of the other customers before turning on the staff. The officers calmed the scene and called for backup before striding purposefully towards the bar's entrance. As they walked, they released their sidearms from their holsters. Both carried the Glock, one of the three types of semi-automatic 9mm pistols issued to NYPD officers. Chevelle pulled open the large outer door and they entered a small hallway. The door swung slowly closed behind them and they stood by a cash register in a foyer where they let their eyes adjust to the dim lighting. Both of them had been here before whilst off duty and knew the layout inside as much as they recognised its stale, musty odour. The smell had never previously bothered either of them, but today it seemed unusually unpleasant. Music was playing from within. The current song was Boys, 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 a track from the 1980s by a sultry Italian pop star called Sabrina. Seems like they're playing your song, hey? Chevelle whispered to his partner with a smirk. They moved further into the club, through a ribbon curtain, and into the main dance area, their shoes sticking slightly to the floor. There was a stage to their left, with benches around low plastic tables. To the right was the bar area, illuminated with tacky neon lights and bar stools with red heart-shaped seats. Some of the stools had been overturned, and it was to this area that their attention was drawn. Lying face down by the bar was an enormous black man. His legs were twitching, and underneath his torso there was a small pool of blood, that looked unnatural in the artificial light. He was wearing a string vest and his arms were thick and muscled. He was clearly the doorman. Just beyond him, lying on the floor, was another man who could easily have passed for a homeless person. He was dressed in ill-fitting jeans, grey plimsolls that had worn through at the sole, and a dirty white t-shirt with the name of a rock band, Battleborn, emblazoned on it. Another dark puddle was slowly growing around his upper body. The bar was curved, and from where they stood, they could just see the legs of a third person slumped at the far side. Cautiously, they manoeuvred around the tables whilst checking for anyone else. The man looked up and stared at them. Struth! Chevelle exclaimed. Gerard, what on earth have you done? Sergeant Gerard did not move. He just glared balefully at them with bloodshot eyes and moaned. He had clearly not shaved for a couple of days. His hair was dishevelled, and his clothes were a mess. The bandages that the hospital had applied were hanging loosely by the side of his head and his ear was covered in blood. He wore stained jeans that were torn at the knee and a scruffy jacket. What have you done? Chevelle repeated as he edged fours carefully, his gun trained on his sergeant, but his other hand held out in a placating gesture. Gerard did not react or speak. He just stared down at his fingers that Chevelle now noticed were dripping with blood. There was more blood around his mouth and down the front of his jacket. As Chevelle moved slowly towards him from the front, Sparrowhawk slipped closer from the side along the edge of the bar. In one hand, he too held his weapon, but with the other, he had unhooked handcuffs from his belt. He would not get a chance to use them, however. Suddenly, Gerard's head jerked up. The wild, unfocused stare had been replaced with a brief glimmer of recognition. His expression became apologetic for a moment, and then his features rippled. He snarled, and anger flooded his face. 
as though a mask had been dropped seamlessly into place. His hand moved under his jacket to a bulge that neither had previously noticed. Keep your hands where I can see them, shouted Sparrowhawk as Gerard pulled a gun from his trouser belt. He held it at an unusual angle, as though it was unfamiliar to him, but swung it menacingly in their direction. Without hesitation, two shots blew Gerard's head apart, one fired by each policeman. The ensuing investigation exonerated both officers of any guilt. Forced into a situation which left them no other option, they had fired upon their colleague only as a last resort. The erratic actions of Gerard, both in Valentine's and over the previous days, were put down to the acrimonious divorce he had been enduring. Other colleagues had found he had become somewhat bad-tempered and withdrawn, and had clearly been bottling up his emotions. The divorce distracted attention from the attack he had suffered at the Bugue House, which was subsequently overlooked, and no association was ever made. Gradually, across the planet, a pattern of uncharacteristic aggression was emerging and spreading faster than anybody could ever have envisaged. Still, the appropriate connections between Nemolos and the attacks were not being drawn. Time was running out, and unfortunately, the opportunity for effective intervention was dwindling and all but gone.